Welcome to We've Got Issues. I'm Joshua Holland. Yet again, we have a ton to cover this week. I had actually prepped like the typical 10-minute introduction, but we've got two really interesting guests this week. They both went long. Uh, I'm ju- I'm going to just hold that intro I was thinking of doing today for another week. Um, first up, we have Robin Marty, who is exactly who we needed to speak with this week uh, as a draft of Sam Alito's decision overturning Roe v. Wade was released. Robin has long been an abortion rights activist. She then embedded with the anti-choice movement for a while, and she runs an abortion clinic in Alabama. She's written several books about this issue. Um, Then we're going to talk politics and the media with Michael Tomaski, who is the executive editor of The New Republic. And first, just a few quick items I want to make sure you saw. Um, According to the Department of Homeland Security's Inspector General, under Trump, the Department of Homeland Security delayed and altered an intelligence report on Russian interference in the 2020 election. Um, They made changes that, and I quote, appear to be based in part on political considerations, which is kind of understatement, I think. CNN reports, and I quote, the April 26th Homeland Security Inspector General's assessment provides a damning look at the way DHS Office of Intelligence and Analysis dealt with intelligence related to Russia's efforts to interfere, stating the department had deviated from its standard procedures in modifying assessments related to Moscow's targeting, blah, blah, blah. Um, The conclusion that Trump's appointee appeared to have tried to downplay Russian meddling in a key intelligence report is the latest example of how his aides managed his aversion to any information about how Russia might be helping his election prospects. Uh, That guy and his minions did so much damage to our institutions. It's kind of nuts. There are also just two examples of the the rhetoric that's coming out of the uh, MAGA right, the neo-fascistic rhetoric coming out of the MAGA right, having um, dangerous real-world consequences. First up, this crazy story. CBS reports that, and I quote, a California man was arrested for making violent threats against the Merriam-Webster Dictionary over the dictionary company's gender definitions. The dictionary. They freaked out over the dictionary. I mean, you get these people, you know, you're just going to get these people angry all the time. You've got this sprawling media, you know, propaganda infrastructure just pissing these people off. And then they start, you know, threatening the dictionary. <laughs> The DOJ said, it's it's not funny, but I mean, it's just, it's crazy. The DOJ says Jeremy David Hansen, 34, from Rossmore, California, could face prison time if convicted for anonymously anonymously sending what authorities described as violent, despicable, and hate-filled messages. He threatened to shoot up the offices of Merriam-Webster, of the dictionary, threatened to go and attack the dictionary. And amid this contrived right-wing panic over what they call critical race theory, which is just any mention of race or just anything they don't like, really, um, the Armed Conflict Location and Event Data Project released a new report which found that, and I quote, since the beginning of the year, at least 80 bomb or shooting threats have been made against schools across the United States, and almost all of them targeted historically black colleges or black majority schools. It is a stochastic terrorism. Again, you gin up anger and it's designed to get people out to the polls 
But then some people are a little unstable and it also leads to violence. And we've seen that with the abortion debate for decades, right? You call it killing babies. You accuse your opponents of infanticide. And of course, some people are going to, um, you know, protect the babies with bombs and with guns and, and, um, and with assassinations, like in George Tiller's case, right? He was, um, Fox News went after George Tiller for months until somebody shot him in church. And it's all for partisan purposes. It's for partisan purposes. So, folks, you know, I try to always, like, look at the bright side. It's very difficult this week. There isn't a lot of bright side. Everything kind of sucks. But we're going to have two guests that are going to help us understand what's happening. And, and that's also important. It's important to pay attention, even if it's not that pleasant. Anyway, let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back with Robin Marty. Stay tuned. Give a little bit, give a little bit of your love to me. I give a little bit, I give a little bit of my love to you. See the man with the lonely eyes, I'll take his hand. Welcome back. My next guest is um, super smart and someone whose opinions and analysis I value a lot, but I did not want to have her on the show this week. Like most of you, no doubt, I am uh, pretty shaken up by the draft of Sam Alito's Supreme Court ruling that if it stands, would not only uh, eradicate abortion rights, let's not, let's not sugarcoat it, but and also possibly pave the way for allowing states to ban birth control might lead next to like overturning Obergefell, the landmark case that legalized same-sex marriage and, and pave the way for getting rid of other rights that Americans have enjoyed uh, for decades in some cases longer than that, even if they were um, constantly under threat. Anyway, Robin Marty is the operations director of the West Alabama Women's Center. She is the author of the handbook for a post-Roe America, obviously a very relevant read. She's also the co-author with Jessica Mason Piclo, who is another one of our favorite guests of the end of Roe v. Wade and Crow after Roe. Robin, welcome back to the show. I wish it were under better circumstances. I mean, it's only the apocalypse. I'm sure it's it's fine. <laughs> I mean, this is what we've been we've been waiting for. It's it's only a surprise to like the most naive uh, New York Times reporters and Susan Collins and the like. <laughs> um, it's hard for me to even overstate how inconsequential it is that someone leaked a draft of this decision, except insofar as the leaking will probably lock in uh, those five votes for a ruling that is uh, either this ruling or one that is very similar. 
And yet that leak has become a focus of an enormous amount of discussion and has served as a kind of distraction from what the actual ruling contained. It's certainly been the, the talking point from Republicans when asked about getting rid of Roe v. Wade. They say, let's talk about the leak. You hear people on um, Twitter saying that the Republicans are like, don't know how to deal with this and they're just distracting us from it. Your thoughts on how this rolled out. And uh, I mean, are the legacy media just primed to take the GOP's bait when it's something like this? You know, they really are. And you would think they would know better, especially after four years of Trump. But um, so obviously at this point, those of us in the abortion rights movement are pretty punchy. Um, And so my husband walked up to me in the like three minutes between phone calls that I had and said, so what if it just so happens that it was a conservative judge or clerk who leaked that? And they did that so that in June, when they say, okay, just kidding, every state can roll it back to 14 weeks and you still have legal abortion in the first trimester, it'll be another one of those yoink gotcha moments and completely and utterly take abortion off of the table for the midterms. Um, Do I believe this could possibly be true? Probably not. Um, Is it something that I, as a person who runs one of three abortion clinics in the state of Alabama and see 300 patients a month, really want to hold on to with both hands? Yes, please. You know, um, I think it's important to understand one other thing that is another possible scenario here. We don't know how this is all going to play out. Um, the, 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 first of all, that is one reason they might have a, a conservative might have uh, leaked this. A conservative might have leaked this simply to make the leak the conversation as it has been in many quarters and not the, again, the, what the ruling says. Um, and then another scenario that's possible, you know, a lot of legal experts Expected. I know you did not, and and uh, Jessica Mason Piclo, among others, did not expect this. But some were saying, "Look, we're, what's going to happen?" Pr- some predicted that they would not write a ruling that says Roe v. Wade is hereby overturned, but they would just chip away at it to the point mm-hmm. where, you know, it, it is effectively no longer the law of the land. And I, so, I wanted to point out that if they do that. Um, you know, it, it, it's important to understand that like they've already overturned the principle of Roe in not intervening in the Texas yeah. six weeks. That is true. So like, um, let's keep that in mind. One thing that I, so my perspective, um, since I don't think your audience knows me, my perspective comes from having done tract abortion legislation with Jessica for like a decade and then embedding with anti-abortion activists for another five years after that. And now I run an abortion clinic and it's a variety of viewpoints that has allowed me to kind of move from activism to practicality. And one of the things that I don't believe that people understand right now is the fact that 
when you are in a state like Alabama, where we don't just have an abortion ban that's going to go into effect when Roe v. Wade is overturned, like a lot of states do once this, the people in their states go and say, hey, judge, let this injunction go. It's no longer relevant. We have a zombie law. And so zombie laws are what they're calling these pre-Roe bans that are on the books legally, but have not been enforceable because Roe v. Wade has superseded that. So when you are in Alabama, what we are doing every day that we know that the court is releasing decisions is we have somebody watching, usually me, to find out if that is the day that this decision comes out. Because the second that somebody on the Supreme Court says Roe v. Wade is overturned, abortion is illegal in our state. The second we can be hit with um, legal fees, legal challenges, um, our doctor could go to jail if she performs any abortion after that moment. So what that means in a reality sense is that if we have patients and understand that Alabama is a 48-hour wait, so patients come in, they have their first appointments, they have their ultrasound, they have to go away for 48 hours and think about whether they really want this or not. Um, and then they come back and then they can have their procedure or their pill. So if they are in the waiting room, all of them come in at eight in the morning, the Supreme Court is going to start releasing decisions at 9 a.m. our time. If they are still sitting in the waiting room, if they are back in with nurses with a Dixie cup in their hand but hasn't swallowed their pill, if they're undressed and on an exam table but we haven't actually started dilation, that person has to go home because if we do anything, that's an illegal abortion. And according to some of our legal counsel, it's possible that because of the way the pre-roll law is written, that person who receives the abortion could also be put in jail or fined as well. Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's what I plan uh, for right yeah. now. <laughs> yeah. right, let's take a step back. Um, I always like to, you know, assume that uh, not all of our listeners are following everything very closely. Let me just point out, this is a draft uh, of a ruling in a case we've discussed on the show before, most recently with Jessica. Um, called Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health. Um, Robin, if this is the decision handed down by the court later this year, mm -hmm. um, what does the next day look like in terms of abortion rights in America, not just in Alabama? And what do the ensuing months and years look like? And I ask the question that way because, as you say, some states have these zombie laws on their books that automatically snap into effect the second that Roe v. Wade and, and Casey versus Planned Parenthood are overturned. And others are, you know, red states that are signaling that they're going to be bringing in new, new legislation at this time. Right. So I believe there are four, maybe five states that have zombie laws on the book. I know Wisconsin is one. Um, we are one. New Mexico is one. Um, I think Arizona as well. These are all ones that could immediately be enforced the moment that they say Roe v. Wade is overturned. Um, will their states actually do it that moment? Um, that's a little more questionable. I do know that Air the Arizona governor has been saying that he feels that their new 14-week ban is actually something that should supersede that old law. And so basically it would be up to prosecutors, up to up to legislators, up to the powers that be to decide how strictly they want to enforce these things right away. In Alabama, we assume that they want to come right for it because it's Alabama and they've wanted us closed and gone forever. 
Um, for states, and there are 13 states altogether that have trigger laws, those trigger laws all sort of vary. So some of them is like within 24 hours, some of them is within a week, some of them are within 30 days, some of them it's the next time the legislature meets. So each one has a different individual mechanism that will put it into effect. And then you go to states like Georgia, um, Kentucky, Ohio, all of these states that have have bands that are pre-viability that have been blocked by judges. So heartbeat bands in Kentucky and Ohio and, and Georgia, these are all laws that would then go into effect as soon as somebody, a legal counsel probably for the state, would then go to whatever judge has performed the injunction on it and says, okay, Roe v. Wade is overturned, the, your injunction should no longer stand, please recede. And as soon as the judge says, okay, I'm taking the injunction away, then that would go into effect. On top of all of that, you would have legislatures that would then meet and say, oh, I want a total abortion ban, because that could still happen as well, too. What I can tell you is that if Roe v. Wade is overturned and this draft stands, um, I would say that by probably as early as fall of this year, we would see 26 states in the United States that do not have access to any legal abortion, um, except maybe some small exceptions, or maybe if they are lucky, six weeks into a pregnancy, which is only two weeks after a period is missed. Those states are almost entirely in the Midwest and in the Southeast. Um, there would be Illinois, Minnesota, Colorado, New Mexico, and then everything else would be on the West Coast or the Northeast. Um, in Missouri, they're looking at a constitutional amendment. Uh, there's a bunch of other there's a bunch of other things that are kind of cooking in the in the margins. Let me ask you this: Claire McCaskill points out that in Missouri, speaking of Missouri, um, that Missouri's abortion ban uh, would, which is would either snap back or be triggered if, if Rose overturned, would make in vitro fertilization impossible. Yes. Um, how might this impact other health care besides abortions? What, what about ectopic pregnancies and other related uh, Same thing. So Missouri is really interesting. I'm going to get geeky for a second. Um, there is something called the Missouri Preamble, and that was the very first idea of adding sanctity of life to a state constitution. The Missouri Preamble started way, way, way back in um, the 80s, right when they were doing the legal case for Planned Parenthood v. Webster, which was actually the first time everybody said, oh, hey, Roe v. Wade is going to be overturned. I think it was 1984, 86, somewhere around there. Um, it was also the first introduction of a 20-week abortion ban, and people don't realize that it actually started as far back as that. So the Missouri Preamble is the first time that right to life was written into a state constitution and is something that declares that life begins at the moment of conception. And that means that from that point onward, it needs to be protected. We've seen a number of states do some version of that since then. Essentially, any state that does not have a state constitutional right to an abortion has tried to put this sort of personhood amendment into their state constitution. Um, but yes, when you say that a fertilized egg is a life that has to be protected at all costs, then you are going to immediately get into the questions of, okay, so can you keep a 
frozen embryo frozen or is it denying it its right to life if you don't implant it? Can you have an ectopic that you treat with methotrexate, which is a injection that will essentially dissolve it so that, and it's an immediate effect so that you don't have to worry about a fallopian tube bursting. But what do you do when you have all these Catholic doctors who say, you know, that is considered direct murder. And instead we can only do watchful waiting or we can remove that point of the fallopian tube with the egg still inside of it because that point it would be an indirect cause of death and so it would no longer be considered an abortion it's the same reason why we see people who are having miscarriages or very very early premature births prior to viability that will be forced to go ahead and go through labor to the point where they could be in sepsis even though there's still at least four, five, six weeks before even the slightest possibility of a fetus being able to breathe on its own is going to happen simply because at anything that is done directly in order to quote unquote stop this life is considered an abortion and murder. That's what we are going to see. And that's the sort of thing that's going to be sussed out state by state and case by case. Um, And I think that the real repercussions when that happens are going to fly in the GOP's face. Yeah. Um, in Missouri, speaking, uh, still speaking of Missouri, a uh, lawmaker, a state lawmaker, Rep- Representative Mary Elizabeth Coleman, a Republican, of course, um, introduced a law last month that would um, punish people for crossing state lines to find reproductive health care in states where it's legal. So, um, and, and of course, Missouri is right next door to Illinois, which is a blue state. And women in Missouri currently go to Illinois to get health care. And um, according to the Washington Post, the measure could signal a new strategy by the anti-abortion movement to extend its influence beyond the GOP-led states poised to enact tighter restrictions. So, I mean, nobody should be fooled that they're safe living in a blue state. And I I must I just want to point out that. you know, that kind of law would be blatantly unconstitutional, but does that even matter with this current Supreme Court? Well, I would actually counter the idea that this is a new thing. Um, We have already seen these laws be introduced over and over again at a federal level. Um, The Siena, it's the Child Interstate Abortion Notification Act, is a law that has been brought about by Republicans pretty much every year. I believe there's a Republican in Florida, woman, I can't remember her name right now, but it introduces the idea that it is illegal to take a child out or not even a child to take anyone under the age of 18 outside of a state in order to help them obtain an abortion in a state where they are then allowed to get one without parental notification. So this is something that has actually been worked on for about two decades now. It's always been stopped. Uh, I don't praise Narrell often anymore, but I will say that in the 90s, they had an amazing campaign that was called the Jail Grandma Act. And that is what they called it when the idea that a grandmother might take a child across the state lines in order to get her an abortion. Um, And there's nothing that upsets people more than the idea of sweet little old white ladies with white hair somehow going to jail. So this has always existed. Um, I will not play the 
is this constitutional or not constitutional game at this moment simply because I don't understand what is happening at this court at all and nothing in my opinion that they're doing is constitutional. Um, I will say that I have concerns that this is the sort of thing that will be enforced. Um, I especially have concerns about the fact that I am personally very worried about the idea of some sort of resurgence of Comstock acts. So the idea that providing people with material about abortion, um, information about abortion, advertisements about abortion, about birth control, letting them know where clinics are, um, all of these acts are going to become criminalized as well again. And in some ways, we kind of already see this happening. Um, The state of Arizona passed a bill in 2013, I believe, that says that it's illegal to um, it's illegal to advertise about abortion services. And the state of Mississippi wrote into its most recent version of its total, total criminalized abortion bill, which ended up not passing in 2021. But it said that it was a felony to provide any information about how to do your own abortion. Um, so we are seeing a, the beginnings of what the very extreme GOP wants to do as a informational lockdown that can make sharing information become a jailable offense. Um, it, these are the free speech warriors. Yeah, exactly. Right? And that's the thing is yeah. it doesn't necessarily even have to be something as pointed as having a law. When we look at social media sites, if we look at Instagram, if we look at Facebook, if we look at Twitter, we can already see that, especially Facebook and Instagram, stories about abortions, stories about where you can access pills, those are being throttled already. Um, we've had activists speak out. Um, it's mostly ignored because the same time that we are discussing how information about how to do these things is being throttled, you have the Lila Roses of the world complaining that their videos about babies being ripped apart limb by limb are not being allowed on the sites either. And so social media gets to basically throw their hands up in the air and say, oh, hey, look, we're banning everybody. So really, we are we are giving equal protection to everyone. All right. Both sides. Both sides. Um, yeah. Um, Margot Snipe and Christina Correga wrote this week that there is a racial angle here. Uh, they know that black women are three times more likely than white women to die during childbirth. Um, and they also have three times the rate of abortions than white women. And of course, many of the states that would ban abortions outright, right, in the South, yep, like Alabama, have large African-American populations. Um They write, and I quote, if abortions go underground, advocates worry that black people seeking them out would be disproportionately criminalized and be more susceptible to negative health outcomes. Uh, You operate a clinic in Alabama. Can you talk a little bit about this piece of the equation? Yes. Um, And I think that while we obviously have racial disparities that come from both poverty and racism, and especially racism in police surveillance and racism in a medical setting, one of the aspects that keeps getting left out of this is the fact that the reason that Black people are more likely to be criminalized in pregnancy decisions and 
And the reason that Black people are more likely to have abortions is because Black people are more likely to have unexpected pregnancies and unintended pregnancies. They also give birth more often. And the reason that they have more of these is because as a greater population and a lower poverty rate in these states in the South, these are also the same states that have managed to, for more than a decade, opt out of expanding Medicaid under Obamacare. Alabama's big victory this year was that they finally managed to convince the entire legislature to expand Medicaid for people who have given birth to uh, one full year after giving birth, because before it was just six months. Like this is their whole big cheering on of expanding health care. That's how bad it is. In our clinic, we have patients that are predominantly black. I would say about 75% of our patients are black. Um, many of them are already parents. A lot of them are getting some sort of financial assistance in order to be able to afford their abortion. Um, lots of them are taking time off of work or time out of school in order to come and do this. And what we are seeing is that these are people who are either unable to access birth control because there is no free available birth control in our state. It's completely held up in each county has one county health department where you can go to get IUDs or long acting reversible contraception and they have months long waits. Um, there is no, we have two Planned Parenthoods in the entire state. That's it. We have doctors that when you are actually able to have insurance and have a private physician, they are basically dictating who is and isn't allowed to have birth control. We've had patients who have come in post having a child and they've told their doctors that they want IUDs and their doctors have said that because they've already had children and in their opinion have had quote unquote enough children that their only option is sterilization and if a person is not ready to completely give up childbearing and may want to do it five years down the road when they're feeling more comfortable about having another child. Um, they're being told by their doctors that if they won't be sterilized, then they should just be happy to get pregnant if they get pregnant. We use pregnancy as a punishment down here and it's terrifying. Yeah. Yeah, it is terrifying. Um, we're almost about out, we're about out of time. I, I, I just want to pull a few threads together and talk about another kind of touch on a uh, very kind of dystopian uh, possibility here. Oh, it's all dystopian. Uh, it is all dystopian. But this is, this relates to reproductive surveillance, religious right, vigilantism. Um, Vice reported this week, and I quote, that a location data firm is selling information related to visits to clinics that provide abortions, uh, showing where groups of people visiting the locations came from, how long they stayed there, and where they went afterwards. This information is cheap and widely available, uh, and they're selling it to whoever. I should note that the CDC bought tracking data from a Peter Thiel-aligned company uh, to see whether people were locking down due to COVID. Um, Elizabeth McLaughlin warned on Twitter not to use period tracking apps because they can be used to determine who is pregnant and when they are pregnant. And then uh, Nandimi Jammy, who is a tech watchdog, reported that a new startup, Silicon Valley startup, is planning on selling abortion-related data directly to law enforcement. And I, the reason I think that this is so frightening is that you have this Texas abortion ban, which empowers any citizen um, to enforce it and actually bars the government from from enforcing their, their six-week ban. So if you just bring these threads together, 
um, you can see where this might be heading if Alito's draft becomes the law. Yeah, it's it's really bad. Um, <laughs> if I write another book, it's going to be called It's Really Bad. Um, yeah. I will say that for people who do want to have period trackers, there is an app that is being provided by Women Help Women, which is one of the organizations that helps people manage their own abortions. It's called Yuki. E-U-K-I, and this app has no cloud data. It has no backup. It is only on your phone and can be kept secure with a pin as well. So if you are a person who wants to track your period but is worried about all this other um, surveillance on it, that is something that they can download in order to continue doing it. And it also has a lot of abortion and reproductive health advice on it. Um, we, I have not read the advice thing yet. It has been sent to me over and over again, and I have not had a chance to sit down and look at it. Although I will say that lots of people have been asking me about it. Um, I tell people that at this point it, I hate that it's come to this, but if you are pregnant and you aren't entirely sure you're happy about it, don't say anything to anybody. Don't write anything in an email. Don't put it in a text. Don't call people and tell people that you don't want to know because we're in a snitch society right now. And the person that you trust right now could leak it to the person who decides that they want to make sure that you don't murder the little baby. And that's something that unfortunately we have to be aware of. Um, I also think that when we head into this post-Roe America, obviously the things that changed abortion opinion before Roe v. Wade were the pictures of and information about people who had died trying to access care. We are luckily in a situation where we do not have to worry about that in the same respect anymore. We have many safe abortion. um, We have many safe abortion options, especially medication abortions that make it so that people can have the same clinic experience in their home safely. Um, But obviously we have surveillance. And so we need to be prepared for the idea that as we head into post-row, what's going to change everything isn't going to be the picture of people who are in septic wards is going to be the people who are jailed for providing their own abortions, for helping people obtain their own abortions. And that is going to be be the message shifter for us. And what I'm telling people right now is that if you are a person of privilege, somebody with money, somebody who's white, somebody who's cis, het, um, all of those things, if you have the ability, you should decide what you are willing to do right now in order to support abortion, even if it is illegal, because people are going to get arrested. And it's our job right now to make sure that the people who are arrested are not the communities who are already being the most harmed. Oh, yeah. Rob and Marty, I so wish we had you on during a time when some optimism uh, was justified. But I really want to thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. I, I, re- I really do appreciate of it. Of course. Anytime, Josh. Folks, stay tuned. We're going to take a quick break and then come right back with Mike Tomas.
Welcome back. I'm still Joshua Holland, and I'm joined now by Mike Tomaski. Mike is a veteran columnist and um, rock and roll dude, and he edits The New Republic, which has uh, undergone a massive transformation since it um, drove me batty during its radical centrist days in the 80s and 90s, and is just an excellent publication these days. Mike also edits Democracy, a Journal of Ideas. I have no idea where he finds the time for all of this. Um, Mike, welcome back to We've Got Issues. Thanks so much, Josh. Nice to be with you. Yeah, it's been too long. Um, our first guest discussed the draft of Sam Alito's ruling overturning Roe v. Wade and Casey versus Planned Parenthood. So we are not going to get into the substance of that too much, but I just want to ask you a little bit about the politics. And um, and I'm I'm gonna we're gonna talk about the media and how the media covers things these days and the normalization of extremism on the right, which is related to this. So. Um, Politico had a piece the other day. It was titled, Democrats are skeptical. SCOTUS will save them in November. (laughs) They're skeptical that the Supreme Court will save them in November. Okay, why not? (laughs) Um, They quoted one Democratic pollster saying, and I quote, the issue will help at the margins. That is the overturning of Roe v. Wade. But to retain control of Congress, we need inflation to go away. Um, Mike, they granted that Democratic pollster anonymity for some horse race punditry. Yeah. <laughs> also, Mike, it was Mark. It was Mark Penn, right? What are the chances it was Mark Penn? <laughs> That's where I'd put my square. Yeah, yeah. You never go wrong with that one. So, meanwhile, CNN granted anonymity to a White House advisor who said, and I quote, "This will have an extraordinary galvanizing force with some of the very Americans who don't always turn out or weren't really looking to the midterms yet." So that's a unnamed White House advisor, and I mean it. It makes me crazy that this is all just horse reduced to horse race. These are civil, you know, women are going to die. Um, healthcare providers are going to be likely thrown into prison. And it's all about the midterms. Let me ask you this. Can anybody who has some contacts among the, I think it's 3,500 people working in the executive office of the president, we call the White House advisor. Uh, yeah, probably. Um, Do you need a badge? Do you need to go to, you need to get some certification for that? Well, you know, I used to gather such quotes and still do from time to time. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, I always tried to apply a standard to myself that I didn't want to deceive readers. So like, I wasn't going to call the cook. You know, uh, uh, you know, a, a culinary advisor. Yeah. <laughs> right. right. I mean, if I was going to accept a quote like that, it had to be somebody who was really in a legitimate position of, of um, in a, in a little legitimate position to know, if not the president's thinking or the senators or whomever, at least, you know, the general thinking that was guiding the administration. So, yeah, uh, I, I would hope that whoever is doing that reporting is applying that standard, but who knows? Yeah. Um, so I can't, I can't call you a white house advisor, right? It's too late uh, to give you yeah. anonymity by the way. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So asking you whether you think overturning Roe would enrage the democratic base to a sufficient degree that they, you know, that their enthusiasm equaled or exceeded the, um, you know, let's go Brandon voters six months from now would be a, a kind of stupid question because who the hell knows? This is all unprecedented. But I, 
I just wonder if you have, if you want to offer a gut feeling. Yeah. Um, uh, I think it, sh- it will galvanize uh, some progressive base voters. Uh, first of all, assuming it happens the way this leak indicates yes. that it's going to happen. Right. Yes. I mean, there's, there is some chance that Roberts gets Kavanaugh or somebody to climb down from this position. But if, but if it really is essentially this position, uh, then I think that will wake some people up and they'll say, oh, my God, I just never, you know, there's a lot of people out there who just don't think about stuff until it actually happens. That's right. Uh, uh, now, having said that, I do think it's going to vary from state to state for this reason. Uh, there will be some states, as we know, that will move immediately to pass draconian laws. Uh, and there'll be other states that won't do that. And in fact, will do the opposite. We'll pass laws protecting women's rights uh, to, to an abortion uh, to one degree or another. So I think it's going to vary according to what state does what. So I would anticipate, for example, that in Georgia, uh, uh, which is going to pass such a law if it, you know if it's not sitting there? I think it's already sitting there, uh, you know, ready to be ready to take effect. Um, and but Georgia has a big city uh, and, a, and a very racially diverse uh, population voting uh, voting base. I think it might make a difference in a place like Georgia, and it could actually help Stacey Abrams and Raphael Warnock get over the top. Um, and let's remember too, Josh, that. Uh, a lot of elections are so close these days. You know, what did Joe Biden win Georgia by? What did Stacey Abrams lose it by? What did Warnock win it by? You know, all you need is sort of 50,000, 30,000 even, you know, women who are energized by this. Or young that people. Could, yeah, and young people. And that can make the difference between Abrams and Warnock uh, losing and winning. So, so I think in certain places it can make a big difference, whereas maybe in Pennsylvania, not such a big difference because Pennsylvania is not going to pass one of those laws and abortion is going to remain illegal there. Right. Legal. Pardon me. Well, I mean, this gets to, I think, um, a problem that I see with the inability to nationalize these things. And I, I believe that this could be a galvanizing event as just as the upcoming hearings into the January 6th um, insurgency of dunces, as I call it, could be. Yeah. The potential is there, but for some reason or some combination of reasons that uh, seem to come from the leadership of the Democratic Party, there still appears to be some hesitancy to take off the gloves and to um, describe in plain terms the extremism which has taken over the the Republican Party. The the Biden White House has started to call out MAGA extremism, but cautiously. And their line is that, you know, the sensible Republican Party has been captured. Yeah. Um, which is really off base when you consider the, you know, kind of asymmetric polarization that we've seen beginning with the, well, you could go back, I think, to Gingrich versus Bill Clinton those years. Yeah. And um, I was just talking with David Edwards before you came on, like people forget Michelle Bachman or Sarah Palin, like there's nothing new here. Um, several people have noticed that the White House does not like to say the word abortion. This is a, a, another related kind of observation they say women's health care. They talk about a choice between a woman and her doctor. They, uh, and they definitely don't call January 6th an attempted coup. How are casual observers, you know, you talked about how a lot of people just don't pay attention, supposed to understand the very real threat or threats, plural, that our democracy faces, that, um, you know, people, uh, people of childbearing years face without being prompted 
by the leaders of one of our two major parties. Yeah, you know, I think about this a lot. I write about it some. I talk about it with my friends a lot. <clears throat> and, um, you know, one part of me wishes devoutly that the Democrats spoke more directly about these things and put the issue, the particular issue of the threat the Republican Party poses to democracy more squarely on the table. I was glad to read this morning's headlines about Biden starting to do what he's doing about MAGA extremism. Yeah. I think it may be a little late. Uh, I Very think, late. you know, it, and, it, and it does sort of clash with his, you know, Mitch McConnell's an old friend of mine and I can work with him thing. Uh, uh, so, you know, I do wish the Democrats did more of this. Having said that, I must say, I cannot assert with tremendous confidence that it would work. Uh, because again, people, average people who are paying more attention to, you know, Hollywood news and sports and, you know, raising their kids and whatever it is, they just don't think about stuff until it happens. You know, now you and I would sit here and say, you and I and David would sit here and say, it happened, man. <laughs> it happened on yeah. January 6th. That was a coup. <clears throat> but your average person, to your average person, life is still normal enough that, you know, they still feel like they live in a democracy. Uh, and uh, they just don't notice until something so crazy happens that it's just too late. You know, we ran a story at the New Republic by Daniel Strauss, who's a reporter on staff. He interviewed a bunch of Democratic consultants and insiders and stuff about this. And, and one quote stuck with me. The uh, guy said, he said, you know, I've done campaigns in countries, uh, presidential campaigns in countries that were far in, in far worse shape than the United States is, where, where democracy was just hanging on by the barest of threads. And I've done polling and focus groups in those countries. He said, and even in those places, you can really only get, you know, it's a, people only care about economics and pocketbook issues. That's what they vote on. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, uh, I want Democrats to talk about this stuff. Uh, I'm not sure how effective it would be. Well, I mean, so there's a couple of things here. I, I mean, part of it is that you were talking about the razor thin margins that we have in this country. You know, part of it is is not even persuading you know, the, the mythical independents or uh, well-educated Republicans who might be on the bubble, non-MAGA Republicans, but just motivating the base of the party. You know, we have two uh, Democratic senators who have blocked much of the Biden agenda, much of what he ran on, what much what, what he uh, won the election on. There's a lot of, you know, polls have shown that younger voters, younger Democrats are uh, not terribly motivated. They are demoralized. And just today, as an example, it's not the end of the world, but this this is an example that jumped out of me. Jim Clyburn, the House Majority Whip, very powerful Democrat, he's stumping for Henry Quaylar today down in Texas. Now, for yeah. listeners who don't know, Quaylar is not only one of the most conservative Dems in the House, not only is he anti-choice, right, on this at this particular week. Yeah, he's also been accused of uh, corrupt dealings with the government of. Azerbaijan, the oil-rich country of Azerbaijan, or suspicions have been raised at least. And the FBI raided his house and his offices earlier this year. There's a grand jury. So there's this kind of taint around him. 
He's running against a good progressive, Jessica Cisneros, in a primary. And Clyburn was asked about his support for one of the few remaining anti-choice Dems just as this Alito draft was leaked. And let me pull this up. Hold on a second. So yeah. Clyburn said, and I quote, when people tell you you need to agree on everything. I do not agree with Henry Quaylar on everything. We need to sit down with people who we do not agree with and try to find common ground to do what is necessary to move this country forward. Now, this is like overturning Roe isn't moving forward. And it just seems like that the, the, we have an older leadership in this party, and it seems like they're almost resigned to, to losing their majority. Now, you wrote some something that I think is closely related for TNR's soapbox. Would you call that the blog? It's not, do we, well, call, it's do we say blog like the, anymore? No, it's the politics vertical. The if, politics. If, thank you. I'm sorry. You the politics. TNR's politics vertical soapbox. Um, and your piece was titled Trump is obviously guilty of sedition. So why is the January 6th committee wavering? Uh, we, we had another proud boy plead guilty to seditious conspiracy this week. That is conspiring to interfere with an official proceeding of Congress. By all accounts, Trump is guilty of the same thing. So why are they dithering? Well, I actually, I wrote that a couple of weeks ago, and I think things have changed a little bit. I think they've gotten a little bit more aggressive, and they, you know, and they obviously, you know, I think they have stuff. I think they're sitting on stuff uh, that will be big, big news uh, uh, when they have these hearings and release this report. Uh, but, you know, it will take the whole party uh to speak as an echo chamber to get this stuff out yeah uh and you know and that's what they just don't do as well as republicans and there are some structural reasons josh why why they can't do that and it doesn't work as well the democratic party is more ideologically diverse uh only half of democrats rank and file democrats say they're liberal whereas about three quarters of rank and file republicans say they're conservative uh, more Democrats are moderate, and even 15% of Democrats call themselves conservative. Um, so, you know, there's that. There are also just fewer liberals in this country, unfortunately, than there are conservatives. Uh, so, you know, Democrats, and then there's the whole right-wing media, which really speaks with one voice in a way that the mainstream media does not. So, you know, it's much easier for the right to drive home a message. But to get back to the way you framed the question and Clyburn, um, that is a real problem. That's, you know, that's how things have worked. I understand it. You endorse incumbents unless, you know, yeah, they've sure. really Incumbent done something. Yes. Yeah. Unless they've done something really egregious, but that it needs a rethink. They really have to change that. And this week, as you said, of all weeks, like what, what is he thinking? I mean, I guess it was scheduled before all this stuff, but, but you know, you can cancel things. You that's can put right. them off. What uh, that just boggles my mind. And, you know, I was also uh, in a similar vein, very chagrined recently to see Biden uh, endorse Kurt Schrader uh, in Oregon. Now, now Schrader, uh, along with two other House Democrats, but he was the main one, blocked prescription drug reform and government being able to negotiate Medicare prices. Uh, You know, he's responsible. Yeah. Uh, and he's got a credible opponent. You don't have to endorse the opponent. I understand that. Just stay, stay neutral. Out of it. Stay Just stay neutral. out of it. Yeah. Jeez. I mean, so in your piece, in that piece that I mentioned, you talk about how there was an internal debate within the January 6th committee where the Democrats were worried about politicizing the thing. 
um, as, as you say, they they have some goods, and they there is a supposedly the DOJ is working its way up the chain, right? So yeah, we don't know, but um, and they didn't want to taint that or politicize it. And you 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 wrote like. Do Republicans, I'm going to quote you, do Republicans worry about things backfiring? Hardly ever that I can see. They just do them. And, um, you know, I, I think that you touched on a couple of structural imbalances, but I think that the main one is the one that you mentioned last, which is that yeah. Democrats don't have much of a liberal media backing them, whereas Republicans have this sprawling communications network anchored by the top rated cable news station. And they're very top down in their messaging. So yeah. if, if, if Democrats come out and they say, oh, we're going to, you know, we're going to say this, here's our message for the day. And, and they, they mentioned that at the white house briefing, you know, all of the liberal writers are going to be like ripping it apart. <laughs> you know, they're going to be like criticizing it that there is no echo chamber. So right. this is a very important imbalance, structural imbalance balance in this country that people have to understand. And when I give Democrats a hard time, but I really do understand that they, you know, it, you, you have the, the, I think maybe the fundamental problem is that a lot of liberal donors don't believe that they should invest in media. Yeah. Yeah. They still don't see it. They and, don't see that. you know, it, it's, uh, uh, and I think we've reached a, a very, dangerous point, Josh, and you're, and you're right to, to focus on this issue and make us talk about it for another couple minutes. So going back in time, going back to like Walter Cronkite's day, we had a mainstream media that certainly tilted liberal. I mean, I, I wouldn't deny that for a second. Then in the 1970s, conservatives start to complain about this, Reed Irvine, accuracy in media. They start to set up their own, they start to talk about setting up their own media to give their own reality. And that's a very slow process. And it, it, it happens over a number of years. They can't really do anything because of the fairness doctrine. Then Reagan gets rid of the fairness doctrine. Then right-wing talk radio starts. Uh, then eventually Fox News Channel starts in 1996. But still, you had at the center of this universe, like a big sun, the mainstream media. And then off to the side, like you know, the size of Saturn or something, the right wing media. Okay. Well now <laughs> all these years later, I think the right wing media is like bigger than the mainstream media and has more agenda setting power than the mainstream media because they speak with one voice, because they stay on point, because they're so, uh, uh, um, so uh, loyal to the needs of the Republican party in a way that the New York Times and Washington Post simply are not loyal to the needs of the Democratic Party. And, so, and because they work the refs and yeah. because they figured out how to game the algorithms, this is a big part of it, right? So, oh, yeah. right. you know, every day, Facebook, the top top performers on, on Facebook are Ben Shapiro every and day, ben Shapiro. Dan Bone. Bonino, Bongino, whatever his name is. Yeah. So, I mean, this is a big thing. You wrote an important piece for the magazine last month. Uh, touching on all of this stuff, it's titled, Will the Press Do Its Job to Help Save Democracy? And before we dig into this issue, Mike, I asked you for 15 or 20 minutes. Do I have another five or 10 with you? You got to yeah, run? Let's, let's go seven more. Seven more. Okay. Um, <laughs> so you, you, you start off with this, uh, with Dana Milbank's analysis from a little while ago. He found that the, um, the, 
legacy media, the mainstream media, whatever you want to call it, was giving after a brief honeymoon period was giving Biden more negative as much or more negative coverage as they gave to Trump, which I would say is an, an effort, conscious or unconscious, to stave off out accusations that their coverage of Trump's perfidy was um, was based on bias. Uh, and, and then you talk about, well, actually, let me let me skip here to this quote that I want to get your reaction to. Um, I want to get your take on this quote from The New York Times next executive editor, Joe Kahn. Uh, Mike, do you know him? I don't know him personally, no. Okay. So he's replacing Dean Baquette, who's stepping down after a somewhat rocky tenure. I don't know. He was asked by the Columbia Journalism Review about criticism that The Times isn't covering pressing threats to our democracy with, I would say, sufficient urgency. And his response, in part, and I and I quote, was, he said, the idea that the only thing the New York Times should cover at the expense of the politics that are motivating voters around the country is the threat to undermine the democratic system, and that, therefore, everything on, if you're a Democrat, the other side of the fence is nothing but a threat to democracy, is the formula to not having any more independent journalism in the United States. I honestly think that if we become a partisan organization exclusively focused on threats to democracy, we give up our coverage of the issues, we will lose the battle to be independent. Now, let me acknowledge that he went on to say that the threats to democracy beat is important, but um, what's your reaction to that quote? I mean, what do you think about, what does that tell you about this kind of culture? Well, you know, that he chose to emphasize that and to start his answer that way tells us, I think, a lot about his mindset. And it's, and it's not very reassuring. It, it tells us that, you know, uh, uh, that he uh, he's invested in to some extent, to a, perhaps a considerable extent in continuing to do things the way they've been done. And, and he's, he seems to be, sounds very, very reticent about acknowledging that reality has changed and that one of our two parties has changed and that, and that this has to be thought about differently. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and he also sets up, you know, uh, you know, innumerable straw men in those quotes. I mean, Absolutely. Nobody's, nobody's asking them to ignore yeah, all of them. Right? Nobody's asking politics. them to ignore uh, everything else. Of course not. But, but, you know, we are asking, many people are asking, you know, recognize the reality, recognize what's going on. We had a coup d'etat led by a sitting president against the United States of America. If that doesn't make your hair stand up, you know, what, as a journalist, what does? I contrast it with the Washington Post, which I talk about in the piece that you kindly quoted, because the Washington Post has set up a democracy desk with uh, with about eight people. Eight people is a pretty substantial investment, even for a large newspaper. Yes. Uh, and, you know, the New York Times, to my knowledge, has not set up a democracy desk. And, um, you know, I, I think it's high time, but it sounds like it may not happen. Yeah. I mean, and Greg Sargent is one of the most clear eyed observers in, you know, in, in a major newspaper, as far as I'm concerned. And he is he's. In these, he's on the opinion side, but nonetheless, I mean, the, the choice to have him uh, writing about this stuff as he does, again, with really clear eyes, is, uh, is important. Um, he goes on to talk about how 
in 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 arguing that you know politics still exists he says well we don't think the republicans are going to do really well in the midterm elections because they've somehow successfully gamed and undermined the voting system in the united states and this made me think to what degree does acting as if this is a normal midterm midterm cycle 16 months after a failed coup attempt signal a kind of uh, signal a kind of normalcy that doesn't exist. I mean, everyone assumes that Republicans are going to have a wave because that's what usually happens. But we have these hearings coming up. Um, COVID may or may not be past us. It just seems like this isn't a typical time in our history. And again, you know, we just, it's not a coup attempt. There seems to be a normal, you know, we talk about liberal bias. I feel like there's a a normalcy bias in the media. Yeah, yeah that's well said. There really is. Um, and uh, look, inflation is definitely a, a, a problem. There's there's no doubt about it. Sure. I mean, and if if the electorate consists of, you know, 46 percent of people who made up their mind one way and 46 percent who made up their mind the other way, that still leaves 8 percent. And as close as many elections are these days, that really matters. So, you know, you have to persuade those 8 percent. Um but I also do think that, you know, we we may have entered a new phase of midterm elections in the 2018 election. And we, this uh, remains to be seen. But here's what I mean. The turnout in 2018, as you know, was very high for a midterm election, the highest since, I believe, 1914. Uh, and what, we, what conclusion do we draw from that? Well, one of two possible conclusions. One is that it was just that way because of Trump. Uh, but the second is that we have entered into a new era of such intensity and hyperpolarization uh, that a critical mass of voters is now engaged in midterms in a way they just weren't before. Yes. So 2022 will actually be a good uh, test case to tell us was it just about Trump's presidency or have we entered this new phase? The Democrats hope is that it's the latter and that, uh, and that, you know, just more people are energized to vote in, in midterm elections. Uh, you know, I would still predict that the Republicans are going to take the house, but I don't think we're in like 50 seat tsunami territory. Uh, I, I, there aren't that many seats up for grabs. And, and I do think that, that, Democrats, particularly if this Roe decision comes down as we believe it will, uh, will still be somewhat energized. Yeah. Mike, let's have you on again um, in, let's not wait. It's been like two years, I think, or 18 well, months or something like that. Let's have you on sooner. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me and for giving me extra time. I really do appreciate it. Thanks. Really enjoyed it. I would also like to thank Robin Marty and David Edwards, our producer and engineer. I'd like to thank the good folks at Alternet and Raw Story for supporting the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Joshua Hall. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, I would like to thank all of you fine people for tuning in. Have a terrific week. I'm a fireball.